This is the conclusion in our series on the book of Galatians, starting next Sunday, Palm Sunday, right? Yes. Next Sunday, I'm doing an extended series on the atonement. In my place, condemned he stood, the biblical pattern, because there is a pattern, not just a couple details, the biblical pattern of atonement, that will start next, uh, next Sunday morning. So as we wrap up this series, this is part 24. The title is, The Only Thing That Counts. Is Your Life a New Creation in Christ Jesus? I'm looking at Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand, large letters because Paul in different places talks about his deteriorating physical condition with his eyesight. He, everybody debates. He could well have been partially blind by the time he does some of these things. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, that's the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem coming to entice these Galatian, mainly Gentile believers, back into Judaism to supplement what Jesus has accomplished. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. That's an interesting phrase. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, not all of it, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. They want to go back to Jerusalem and say, mission accomplished, we got these people back. That's what he means. That they may boast in your flesh. 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything or uncircumcision. That's not the deal, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God is not in the Middle East. The Israel of God is the new creation, the church, Jew and Gentile, united in the body of Christ, the new Jerusalem, the Israel of God. 17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear in my body the brand marks. That's interesting. The brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. It was a fairly common practice with Paul to have someone else record his words, kind of like a secretary when he put together long letters. That got increasingly hard for him. And then as the letter was coming to a close, he would take the pen into his own hand to help establish the authority, the authenticity of the whole letter. So like, 2 Thessalonians 3.17, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. 
1 Corinthians 16, 21. This greeting is in my own hand. Not the whole letter, probably, the greeting, the attachment. Now, what is unique about the Galatian letter isn't the fact that Paul wraps it up, taking a pen in his own hand, but it's, it's the kind of closing Paul seals the letter with. There's very little in terms of like a warm, personal greeting, as in some of his other letters. Uh, he doesn't name any particular individuals to thank or praise like he does in, again, some of his other letters. There wasn't really even a prayer. which was very common for Paul to wrap up his letters. It, it just seems like so important is this issue of the Galatian heresy from these Jewish false teachers, the danger that it presented to the church that Paul just has a hard time letting go of it. It's quite abrupt. Paul's closing words, they form a kind of test. He offers a practical measuring stick to see if the message of the letter has reached home in his hearers' minds and hearts. Now, we've been studying that letter for huh, well over half a year. Not many churches do that anymore. Rightly or wrongly, not many churches do that anymore. But the same test works right here. Has, has the message of Galatians taken root in our hearts at Cedarview? How will we know? And like any good pastor, teacher, Paul, Paul can't rest content with just imparting data, a theological download. He's after their hearts, and he wants to give a test, several tests, actually, to see whether the truth has been taken up into their lives. And, and the test involves two contrasting mindsets. Two contrasting mindsets. There is a mindset that Paul wants to see disappear entirely from the body of Christ. Wants to see it shrivel up and die. That's mindset number one. And then there's another mindset that will be so abundantly fruitful and spirit-empowered that Paul wants to, he actually calls it the standard May peace come to all those who follow this standard. So here are the two mindsets. First, there is a contagious mindset that is easy but emptying to spiritual life. We'll look at that in a minute. And then second, there's a mindset that Paul wants to see gaining momentum, increasing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So first, on the negative side, the first, point number one, the first mindset, and I modified these, the words might not be exactly the same, don't worry about it. The first mindset equates a relationship with God just with external religious ceremonies and observances. That's the first part, part A of this first mindset. And secondly, shunning the cost of clinging faithfully to the cross of Christ. I get that, both of those parts, in 12 and 13 of chapter 6. 
Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. Good impression. But only to, here it is, the second part of it, avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, yet they want to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. So this first mindset has two parts to it. Two birthmarks. There's two birthmarks of worldliness. Two uh, cancers that will eat up all that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. The first is the love of praise. This is mindset number one. Both of these under mindset number one, the negative mindset. The love of praise and the fear of rejection. First, the love of praise comes out in those two phrases. Verse 12, who want to make a good impression. And 13, in order to boast about your flesh. So Paul uses the example of circumcision to expose the motives of these false teachers. And their main concern was a successful mission. They had been sent from Jerusalem. This, this, this gospel being preached to the Gentiles in Galatia, and they're, and they're turning from the old covenant. And so the leaders of the Jewish community in Jerusalem, they send false teachers, and the false teachers don't want to go back empty-handed. They want to go back to Jerusalem and say, don't worry, we got it under control. There's pride. Nothing would make these false teachers more highly esteemed by the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem than winning over the Gentile converts to the laws of ethnic Judaism. That's what they wanted. That's what they wanted. The false teachers wanted a following. They didn't want to look like failures. They wanted the praise of the leadership. They wanted a successful mission. Now, I guess you have to be careful. I mean, there is nothing wrong with being successful in any ministry. There's nothing wrong with aiming at converts, lots of converts to the cause of Christ. So this is not an argument from Paul against any kind of success in ministry. But there's something desperately wrong when the desire for success overrules the truth of the gospel and the leading of the Spirit. We need to learn well from the picture Paul paints of these Judaizers that it's, it's dreadfully possible, it's dreadfully possible to maintain a hunger for success in a ministry while abandoning the truth of the scriptures. Sometimes you can have a more successful ministry numerically if you're willing to turn from some of the truths of divine revelation. That's the kind of success Paul is concerned about. So after half a year, the book of Galatians, what effect has it had on our lives? Question number one. I said there were tests. This is for all of us. Question number one. Are you measuring your relationship to God not just by external forms, 
but by a transformation of heart with its affections, desires, and values. I said there were, under this first mindset, there were two parts. Here's the the second cancer of bad religion. B, the fear of cultural rejection. Again, you can see it in, in the words of the text, Galatians 6, 12 to 13. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh. So this is, remember, this is the first part of the bad mindset. Pride, success in ministry, in numbers. Now now we're looking at the second bad part of that mindset. Are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not persecuted for the words of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. No, here. here. Here's where you'll get the persecution, the pushback. To avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. My opinion is there has come a growing reticence in the kind of user-friendly North American church, a reticence to be too dogmatically specific about Jesus Christ, God the Son, and the message of the New Testament. I think churches are feeling increasing pressure to lighten up about certain aspects of the cross, divinely revealed truth. Our culture has made the lordship of Jesus in many different areas to appear intolerant and bigoted. There really is a fresh relevance to those descriptive words. It's becoming a much more common inward reflex to want to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. We sang John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Nobody sings John 3.36. You don't believe on him, the wrath of God abides on you. You ever heard anybody sing about that in church? It's in the same chapter. You can't can't like John 3.16 and skate around John 3.36. They're not that many verses apart. You can't say we're getting the truth there, but we're not getting the truth in the same chapter with the same speaker. Back to our text. Because the motive of these Judaizers wasn't Jesus Christ. They were driven by these two terrible, selfish ambitions. These Jewish false teachers launched their crusade to reach this pool of Gentile Galatian converts. First of all, because they wanted to win the approval of those who sent them. And second, perhaps more importantly, they wanted to avoid the kind of persecution that would come if they ever adopted the gospel of Jesus Christ with their Jewish roots. It would not be a popular decision. So a love of praise... That motivated them. They wanted success in their mission and a fear of rejection if they embraced Christ. 
so universal and sustained is this rejection by the world of the gospel of Christ that in this very letter, Paul, you know, like you go across a border, Paul pulls out his passport, his ID as an apostle of Christ. And he chooses not his miracles, Paul had performed mighty miracles, or his sermons, or the number of churches he has planted. He said, you want proof that I really am sticking up for Christ? Here's my ID. Here's my badge. It's the bruises, the burns, the scars, the sores, the shipwreckness, everything that he's gone through for proclaiming Christ. Look at Galatians 6, 17. I love it. From now on, let no one cause me trouble because I really am an apostle. How do you know? Well, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. I've been beaten up for the gospel. So, half a year in the book of Galatians, has it had an effect on your life? said there were two questions. I asked the first. Here's the second. Question number two for Cedarview Community Church. Are you persistent in your devotion to and proclamation of Jesus Christ, God the Son, as the only hope of redemptive fellowship with Father God, especially in a world that persistently presses other options as equally valid? Are you caving in? Those are the two aspects, the negative aspects of the mindset of the world, love of praise, fear of rejection. I said there were two mindsets in the letter. We looked at the first, now on to the the second, what Paul calls the standard of peace and mercy. Point number two. Everybody with me? The two mindsets. The two negative aspects of mindset number one of the world is love of praise right? Fear of persecution for embracing Christ. That's the, those are the the bad mindset of the world. Now the positive mindset. Point number two, peace and mercy of God rule in the life that boasts in the cross of Christ as a source of a totally new heart, a new creation of being through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at 14 through 16. But as for me, now the contrast. I will never boast. Remember mindset number one, the false teachers want to boast that we got them circumcised. We got them back. Paul says, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. It's not in those kinds of externals. What matters instead is a new creation. Make peace come to all who follow this standard, not just admit it, follow it, stay with it and mercy even to the Israel of God. Paul intends, obviously, for us to see a contrast between his boast in the cross and the Judaizers boasting in the applause of men. And we're also meant to see the contrast between Paul's glory in his suffering 
and the others who won't, won't, won't cling to Christ because, well, there's going to be persecution there. Obviously, something totally different is happening in these two mindsets. That's my point. And all of it kind of finds its root in Paul's words in verse 14, where he says, but for me, I will never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me. I don't care if they like me, accept me, reject me, persecute me. The world's been crucified to me. And I to the world. So so the mindset of the Judaizers, that mindset dominated by a love of success and praise and applause and the fear of rejection, Paul says, that's done with me. That came to an end. When he encountered Christ through his cross in all its power, his way of thinking was so changed by the Holy Spirit that his only boast... His only ground of joy, his only purpose, his very reason for living was to proclaim the power of the cross of Christ over everything else that competes. But we have to be careful here. There are many different ways of looking at the cross And we need to kind of fully take in and digest what Paul is saying in verse 14. Because most Christians, I would dare say a lot of Christians sitting in this room right now, when they look at that cross and they think about the cross, they see only one aspect. God forgives us. Forgiveness. It's pretty precious. Forgiveness of sins. It's gloriously true. God does offer forgiveness through and only through the cross of Christ. But I want you to notice something. Notice that it's not the forgiving power of the cross that Paul even mentions when he talks about how it changed his life. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I don't know if you noticed. Forgiveness isn't even mentioned in those verses. Not a mention. God's forgiveness isn't what changed Paul's mindset from that of the Judaizers. Instead of forgiveness, and of course, there's all sorts of verses talking about forgiveness and the cross. I'm talking about here. There's a point Paul is trying to make, and forgiveness isn't the point. What he does here is he talks about two deaths. He says, here, when I encountered the cross, there were two deaths. And here's another surprise. Christ's death isn't one of them. He deals with two other deaths that were just as real as the death of Christ. And until, I think, until we get this straight, our lives will never experience the kind of transformation that Paul is talking about here. Here are the two deaths. A, the world has been crucified to me through the cross, 14. Consider it. This first death 
is not the death of a person. No person is crucified here. If I'm going to proclaim my faith in the cross of Christ, if I'm going to make it my boast, Paul says I must come to terms with the fact that the the whole world system, that's what he's talking about. The whole world system. What do you see nailed to the cross when Jesus died? Paul looks at the cross and what he sees is the value system of the culture the affections of the culture, the priorities of the culture, the styles of the culture. Paul says that all died on the cross. The world. He doesn't mean this planet. He's talking about the the system of the culture. Paul doesn't mean that he doesn't love the world in terms of reaching the world. He said we're ambassadors for Christ. When he says the the world has been crucified, he he means the world as a lifestyle. The system of the world. The world and its attitude toward sex, toward marriage, toward wealth, toward the purpose of wealth. The prioritizing of pleasure. Paul says all of that is, here's, here's what's happened as I encountered the cross. That That package that I just listed, it's a corpse now. It's just a corpse. You ever been to a funeral? I was thinking about the death of my dad, my mom. I I had the experience of speaking at my grandma's, my baba's funeral, my uncle Vic's funeral my father's funeral, my mother's funeral. I had to speak at all those funerals. Have you ever looked at the body, the shell? It'll be raised one day, but right now, just a shell, just lying there. Um, They do their best with makeup, but it's usually kind of whitish. And I never have, and I've never seen anybody else go up and just kind of hug a corpse. We just don't, we don't do that. Or have you ever, you ever been driving down the road somewhere and you see a, a dead squirrel or raccoon? I've never seen anybody stopping his car, getting out, scraping up the dead animal, clean it up, and maybe put it on the mantle in the family room. I mean, I use those ridiculous illustrations. When something's dead, right? When it's dead, it's dead. We don't don't do that with dead things. We either bury them respectfully or we clean them up, but they're forever out of reach from this earthly scene. Paul says, there, the world. The culture, its system, its fashions, its values, its teachings, its view of money, its view of pleasure, all of that. It's, it's like, bang, it's like a raccoon on the highway, dead. It's just dead. There's no attraction in it. There's no life in it. There's nothing to be found in it. It's dead. It's, it's a pretty strong, I'm trying to say, that's a pretty big statement. We just read it so fast, but like, wow, 
This whole world? Dead as a doornail to me? Pastor Don, I, I got a job, paycheck. I got mortgage payments. I get it. But church, at a certain level, this is what this is what the New Testament. Don't think of Paul the apostle. Think of the Spirit of God speaking through Paul. This is God. If you want to encounter the power of the cross in your life, not just as a point of religious doctrine, but as a source of power and holiness and joy and life, you must recognize in some way, sort it out. You have to recognize the death of this world's values and affections as far as you're concerned. And I think this is probably the most neglected aspect of doctrinal truth in the North American church, and revival will never come until we get this straight. I love these words. Hear these words from Timothy Keller, a great little book called Plugged In. Listen to these words. Christians are to show members of other religions and worldviews that the gospel fulfills basic human longings and aspirations. But at the same time, they are to critique the false idols in every culture that people look to for satisfaction of those longings. Here's the money phrase. Sin must not just be denounced in general, but in the particular idolatrous forms found in the culture. Salvation must not just be declared in general, but as fulfilling the very hopes that the culture wrongly puts in the world. That is just so good from Timothy Keller. So there's crucifixion number one, the world. It's been crucified to me. There's a second death. He says in verse 14, and I, I have been crucified to the world. Again, those are words, I don't know about you, I've heard them all my life. So often, in fact, that maybe we don't think through the meaning as we ought. I mean, we know we aren't dead because we're sitting here. I mean, I hope nobody's passed on since the service started. So we're not, we're not dead because we're sitting here, we're listening to this teaching, dead people don't do that. How can Paul say he was crucified? I have been crucified while he's writing a letter. Perhaps the best explanation of 614 is 220. We studied these a long time ago. It seems like another life now. But he's talking about the same death. I have been, see, there it is. Same thing as in 614. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. Christ lives in me. And then, and then but the, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So somehow this being crucified with Christ, it, it, revolves, around, it revolves around this phrase right here. 
I live by faith in the Son of God. That We obviously need to know what that means if we're going to figure out what Paul means when he says, I've, I've been crucified. I don't live anymore, even though I'm writing this letter. The life I now live, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. What does that mean? There. What does that mean? Faith in the Son of God. Not not just to have faith in Jesus, but to live by faith. He's not talking about conversion here. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's important, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the life I live, the life I live every moment, if I'm going to stay crucified, I have to live by faith in the Son of God. What does that mean? And how is this life of faith How is it the death of the old life? Here's what I think it means. A life of faith in the Son of God is a life motivated by the promises given through the Son of God. But even that, I want to explain. There's something true about every one of us in this room. True about me, it's true about you. And it's also true of every person that lives in Newmarket and the GTA and Canada and the whole world. There's something that's basically true. Everyone, everyone lives life on the basis of what they believe about life. Everyone lives life with certain beliefs about where happiness will be found. Everybody does. Everybody lives life on the basis of how they will find security for the future. Everybody does that. Everybody lives life with their own understanding of what is pleasurable, what is to be avoided. We all do that. Paul says he came to the place when he truly encountered the cross of Christ as it was set forth and explained in the scriptures. And he says, it it changed my plan for life. It changed my plans. I now have a different plan, Paul says, about how my life will be fulfilled. I now have a different plan of where joy comes from. I now have a completely different plan of what will secure my life for the future, now and eternally. I now have a different understanding of why I am here with health and what God expects from me. I have a different view of why God gives me an abundant paycheck every month and what I should be doing with it. All of those things, I used to have an understanding of what they were for. Now I know what they're for, and it's totally different. That's what it means. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by this now. I live by this He says he actually came, 14, I actually came to boast in the cross of Christ. Because here's why. Why boast in the cross of Christ? Is he just a glutton for punishment? No. I boast in the cross of Christ because unlike the promises I used to, 
I used to take the promises of the culture for all those things, and they couldn't deliver. Unlike the promises of the culture, the promises of Christ, I have found, deliver what's promised. No wonder I live by faith in the Son of God. He says, this this works. This will leave you empty. Even if you can make it work, it will leave you empty. Live by faith in the Son of God. So Paul says, I, 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 that's what I do. I live my life by faith in the cross of Christ. Paul died to his former system. He died to the idea that the world could provide more satisfaction, better answers to life, or any hope for eternity. He died to all that he had put his faith in previously. And there are just many professing Christians, whether they're saved or not, you leave it with God, that's not my job. But I know there are many professing Christians who will miss who will miss getting what Paul is saying here. They think that to believe in the cross is to believe that 2,000 years ago, a certain event actually happened, that Jesus really died 2,000 years ago. And Paul says, that's empty by itself. I'm not asking you to believe something about the past. The life I now live. The rest of today. Will it show that the most important thing in my life is glorying in the cross of Jesus Christ? And so, yeah. Half a year in the book of Galatians. Has it had an effect on your life? Here's question number three for Cedarview Community Church and for Don Horbin. As you think of the cross of Christ, do you think in terms of the world dying to you as a source of ultimate influence? And do you think of yourself as dying to the things you had put your trust in before coming to Christ? Or do you just squirt a bit of Jesus over your other life? So the cross, I think, must always be considered as a time of three deaths. Not one. Maybe that's why there are three crosses. I don't know that. Christ died for my sins. He really did. Pardon will be found only through him, him alone. The world has been crucified to me as a source of influence. And I have been crucified with Christ. And I will accept gladly any persecution that comes with it. You get those three things right. And you find the peace and grace of God shaping your life in deeper and fuller ways than you ever imagined. And everyone said... When we say amen, what we mean is, so be it. Grant it, Lord. And the thing is, these, these massive, ongoing, transforming truths, we never deal with them just once. They're too big for us. We can't manage them in our own strength. 
which is why we have, through the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ inside. Would you, would you just keep shaping and molding us? We, we don't want to see ourselves as finished projects as Christians. Keep that new creation growing, Jesus, until you, the foundation of the new creation itself, until you come again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.